Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week, we pick a starting point, and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to discover a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode five. Sheds. Now, I have been very pleased with myself these last couple of days because I have successfully, and may I say rather skillfully, built a garden shed. You have, indeed. Very Uh, surprised. (laughs) (laughs) No one is more surprised than me because my DIY adventures usually end badly. But anyway, this got me thinking about sheds. And so I have been doing a spot of research and have found some interesting facts about sheds. Wow, you do surprise me. Yeah. Now, did you know that sheds have been used by a number of notable authors to do their writing in? Oh, yes. I'll tell you, I'll give you a list, shall I? Yeah. Roald Dahl. Oh, yes, yeah. Roald Dahl, he had a, he had a writing shed. Yeah. Virginia Woolf. Oh. Uh, oh. Louis de Bernier. Ooh. And George Bernard Shaw. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, George Bernard Shaw had an interesting shed because it was a modest little six by six foot shed, Mm. but he pimped it by having it built on a revolving base. Right. Why? So he could follow the sun around his little garden. What a brilliant idea. It is a brilliant idea. Why don't, do we have sheds like that now? That's a great idea. No, given how old that was, that's that's some some advanced technology there. And uh, so he could follow the sun around and so that would maximise light. And also um, it would vary his uh, view. Yeah, well, that's a great idea. It is a great idea. And what else is interesting is he called his shed London. Right. Now, why would he call his shed London? Tell me. I'll tell you, shall I? When he didn't want to be disturbed from his writing, he'd get his staff to tell any callers that Mr Shaw wasn't available because he was in London. Oh, very droll. And you can visit his shed because the National Trust owns it uh, and it's in Hertfordshire. So get along and and see it if you like. It's a very nice house, actually, and lovely gardens. Oh, I'm sure it is. I I wish you'd go. Yeah, and I'll tell you someone who did go. In 1944, the actress Vivian Lee. Oh, Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee, no less, visited Shaw at his shed um, because she was appearing in a film based on Shaw's book, Caesar and Cleopatra. And oh. uh, and a photograph exists of that encounter on internet. Oh, Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee. Well, I've, I've got some facts about Vivian Lee, actually. Hit me. <laughs> well, of course, she is most famously known for Gone with the Wind. Would, I, would you say that's true? I would say that that holds up, yeah. Well, did you know that um, her filming schedule was pretty gruelling? Right. She she worked up to 16-hour days, six Ooh. days a week, Ooh. for 125 days. Okay, that is brutal. Yeah, to deal with the stress of filming, she supposedly smoked four packets of cigarettes a day. <laughs> which is some going, and I've worked out that, it, let's say, the 16-hour days that she's awake... Oh, you've done some maths. ..that works out as one ciggy every 12 minutes. Whoa! <laughs> that is... That's some For s- full 16-hour days. That is some smoking. Apparently, she was paid $25,000 for the film, while Clark right. Gable, who worked far less, only 71 days, um, I read... 
He was paid $120,000, which is nearly five times as much as Vivian. Flipping it. So the gender pay gap was in full effect back in 1939. Wasn't it just? And also, this is my final bit on Vivian Lee, um, she let it be known that she didn't much like kissing Clark Gable in the love scenes, right. describing it as a chore because she said that Gable's breath was a bit lively. Oh, <laughs> Well, you know why his breath was a bit lively? Uh, he, he refused to brush his teeth or something. He had um, pyorrhea. Pyorrhea? Which is, yeah, which is essentially gum disease. So sort um, of like diarrhea of the teeth. <laughs> yeah. OK, just going back to George Bernard Shaw, mm. he famously wrote Pygmalion. He did. You will recall, uh, which was turned into a film. They renamed it My Fair Lady. They did. Uh, starring... Um, don't tell, um, uh, it's uh, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn is correct Mundo. However, prior to that, it was a West End show. Yeah. And it starred no less than Julie Andrews ah, and Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison. So I was doing a little bit of uh, research on Julie Andrews. And uh, you know, of course, she was the star of The Sound of Music. She was indeed. Of course she was. And I saw an interview that she gave about... Um, the famous scene in The Sound of Music, you know where she's up in the hills there? The hills are alive that, with the sound of music. <laughs> that very one. Okay, well, if you remember that scene, they shot that from a helicopter. Okay. So you see this beautiful wide yeah, of, yeah. is it Austria or Switzerland? Well, I mean, it's Salzburg, isn't it? Is it? Anyway, yeah. when they were filming that scene, yes, um, they were filming it from a helicopter. Yeah. And the thing was, they had to have a load of takes because the helicopter get, has to get quite close and it just bl the down draft just blew her over. Oh, wow, actually blew her over. Well, she was a little slight thing, wasn't she? I just wish there was... Um, outtakes. Outtakes on the internet, <laughs> but I couldn't find any. Now, she also took the lead role in, famously... Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins, of Mary course. Mary Poppins. Uh, and that is a film that you enjoy greatly. Yes, and everybody else. In the world. In the world. It, who has a soul <laughs> and a heart. Well, you know the song, A Spoonful of Sugar. <laughs> I do. <laughs> a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. No, the it's medicine not. go down. No, I don't know that one. Oh, how's it go? <laughs> For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You're very good at that. Now, you'll recall that Mary Poppins sings that song when she's trying to coerce the two kids into carrying out some household chores yes and do you remember when she burst into song and then a robin i do a slightly crappy yes animatronic yeah. robin yeah comes to the window and whistles um with her <whistles> not only is mary poppins julie andrews singing she's also providing the whistle of that bird <laughs> is she? yeah that's her whistling oh, that does surprise me yeah so it's not only is she a great Aww. singer she's a pretty useful whistler and that led me to remember that once i met a world champion whistler i know because when you moved in with me all those many years ago well when we were young and in when love we were young and in love in the good old days i remember your box of cds that were about to be put onto the cd cabinet and i remember coming across a cd of the world champion whistler yeah and thinking oh what have I done? Do I really know this person that I'm moving in with? He's well, got a, he's got a whistling. Well, before CD. before you pass judgment, maybe you want to chuck that CD on and then and then let's hear your opinion. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, I met the bloke, and the bloke was called David Morris. 
and he's an outstanding whistler and he won the World Whistling Championships in 2003. Anyway, I had the pleasure of meeting him once. Anyway, I thought I'd show off and give him a burst of my own whistling skills. Oh yeah, what did you whistle? I gave him Looney Tunes. Go on then. Wow, pick a key, any key. <laughs> Not bad, but he, in a sort of, you know, you know you have rap battles. Yes. Well, you sort of had a rap battle in whistle, <laughs> whistle form, and he blew me away with his amazing version of Flight of the Bumblebee. Oh, wow, okay. And I have found a clip of David Morris performing that, and we're going to listen to it now. Wow, that's pretty good. That is not an easy one to whistle. It's not bad at all. Anyway, it amused me. You know how uh, uh, when you're on YouTube and you watch a video and then a list of other videos come up that relate to the one you've just watched? Yeah. Um, so I was amused to see that another video popped up um, from a guy called Yuki, or yeah, Yuki Takeda, mm. Takeda. And he described himself as a multilingual whistler. Uh, and I think he sort of slightly set himself up as a competitor right. to David Morris. Mm. And he's got a version of like the bumblebee, which sounds like this. Yeah, and what really made me laugh about this, is there's, the co there's a comment under the video, you know how there is on yes, YouTube, yes. and it's from someone calling themselves Bark Pfeiffer, mm. and he writes, and I quote, you missed five notes. <laughs> I had the sheet music in front of me while I was listening. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Too much time on his hands. Too much time on his hands. However, however, he then does a bit of a, 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 a turnaround. He says, actually, very, very nice. Your arrangement of this very difficult piece was executed to great effect and was very enjoyable. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Yuki. Okay, so while you were playing that um, fantastic version of Flight of the Bumblebee, I was looking at bumblebees. Well, why wouldn't you? Um, did you know that there are 300 different species of bumblebee? Of bumble? 300 yeah. species of just of bumblebee? Just bumblebee, bumble, bumblebee, bumblebee right. and over two and a half thousand species of bee. Good grief. And you know if a bee stings you, I um, do. it I've dies. Had, I've had the pl yes, yeah, sadly. yes, yes. Uh, not so with the bumblebee. Right, what? Yeah. yeah. Their stinger isn't barbed, so it doesn't right. get left in the skin. Of oh. the victim, so it doesn't it doesn't die. Oh, another thing a bumblebee uh, doesn't do, it doesn't make honey. What a lazy! Yeah, they're maverick bees. They just they don't they don't they conform. don't fly with the they don't fly with the swarm. <laughs> yeah. So um, and apparently, a bumblebee with a full stomach is only ever about forty minutes from starvation. That's a bit like you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I see. So the so the old bumbler's got to just keep keep going. It's got to keep yeah. flying around and just yeah, got to keep finding food. In. Wow. Okay. And that uh, that little bit of information comes from Dave Goulson, who is a scientist who founded a conservation trust to support bumblebee populations. Nice one, Dave. Like we, a bumblebee. Well, we need to look after the bees, don't we? And um, that then led me on to um, famous beekeepers. Do you know any famous beekeepers? Famous beekeepers. I mean, we have our fr good friends Ron and Will. They keep bees, they don't they? They keep bees, yeah. Aristotle 
studied bees and kept them in primitive hives. Oh. Um, but I'm reading here that he wasn't um, exactly accurate with a lot of his findings, calling queen bees kings. Fortunately, oh, basic, Aristotle, know, basic. Fortunately for him, he was better at philosophising than beekeeping. Another famous beekeeper. Go on. Sir Edmund Hillary. Oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. he was up Everest the first. Yeah, he? and he worked for his dad's beekeeping business, which was a seasonal occupation that allowed him to fund his climbing ambitions during the Northern Hemisphere's summer. Oh, well, that's very useful for Sir Edmund Hillary. And actually, going back to The Sound of Music... Go on. The real Maria von Trapp... Yeah, go on. ...became a beekeeper... She was a beekeeper. ...after she fled the Nazis and resettled in Vermont in USA. She oh. became a beekeeper. Well, how about that? And also, Sylvia Plath took up beekeeping in 1962. Oh, yeah. Inspired by her late father, who was a bee aficionado... And she wrote a series of five bee-based poems. Would you like to uh, hear a little bit of one? Give us an excerpt. This is from her poem, The Bee Meeting. Please. You ready? Yeah. I am nude as a chicken neck. Does nobody love me? Yes. Here is the secretary of bees with her white shop smock, buttoning the cuffs at my wrists and the slit from my neck to my knees. Now I am milkweed silk. The bees will not notice. They will not smell my fear, my fear, my fear. Oh, I, I don't you, know if I've given that justice. I, th I thought you, I was, I was, I was, I was the right there. And lastly, Henry Fonda kept bees. Oh, okay. And uh, thought very highly of the honey they produced. He said, "There's not a honey on the market like mine." Oh. He, yeah, he boasted um, in the New York Times, like it was him that made the honey, not the bees. Okay, talking of Henry Fonda. Yeah. Famous kids, of course. Yeah. Jane Fonda. Yeah. And Peter, Peter Fonda. Yeah. I found a very interesting fact about Peter Fonda. Okay. Which will possibly amaze you. I don't know. Let's see. Right. Do you know the song She Said She Said by the Beatles? She said, I know what it's like to be dead. Okay. Yeah, that's it. From the album Revolver. And the lyric goes, as you say, She said, I know what it's like to be dead. Now, that was written by John Lennon after he'd had an encounter with Peter Fonda. Oh. Here's the story. The Beatles were staying in a big old mansion in Hollywood. They were resting after their US tour. It was the US tour where they famously played the Shea Stadium. Oh, yeah. And they hosted a party for Roger McGuinn and David Crosby yeah. of The Birds. Yeah. Uh, and there was a load of other people there. It was famous. I think Joan Byers is listed as going. And um, Peter Fonda and uh, being the 60s man they were all dropping acid not all of them I'm sure alright yeah. just a little disclaimer there there was a certain amount of LSD being dropped shall we say and anyway Peter Fonda supposedly according to John Lennon's uh, memoirs uh, was going around recalling when as a kid he accidentally shot himself he accidentally shot himself he accidentally shot himself and effectively sort of shot himself dead and he was he, he, he was brought back to life in an operating theater oh wow yeah and so he was going around telling people i know what it's like to be dead oh wow and that's where the lyric came from so john lennon took that lyric and changed it to she he changed it to she rather than he um but whoa, what a, is that a slight bummer at a party to be going around telling everyone i know what it's like to be dead oh good for you peter well, it's so funny you should say that because John Lennon also in his memoirs was saying that, yeah, he was slightly bumming people oh, out. Oh, yeah, people especially if you're on acid. <laughs> <laughs> people are tripping, trying to have a nice time. And there's Peter Fonda being all a bit morbid, saying, yeah. oh, I know what it's like, a bit slightly creepy. Yeah. John Lennon had to ask him to leave. Oh, did he? 
Yeah, <laughs> apparently so. And I also found out at this very party, Roger McGuinn and David Crosby recommended the music of Ravi Shankar mm. to George. Oh. To George. And George digged the groove and he actually uh, arranged to go over to India to learn how to play sitar oh, wow. from the master, oh. Ravi Shankar, no less. So that all started with Roger McGuinn and... Uh... That all started with oh. Roger McGuinn, the whole Ravi Shankar thing. Anyway, um, when George was going over to India to learn the sitar, Ravi said, listen, do you mind coming in disguise because we just don't need any unnecessary attention. Yeah. So George grew his tash. Right. Which is quite, it's quite a famous tash now. Yeah. We, th we quite often think of George with his tash, but yeah. he grew that tash and grew his hair yeah. or styled his hair differently in order to remain incognito. Mm -hmm. And apparently he got all the way through customs and passport control and all the rest of it. Um, and it was only at the hotel in Bombay where he was spotted, spotted. by a bellboy who then the word got out, crowds started ah. to gather. So uh, George and Ravi had to get the hell out of Dodge mm. and they did their sitar lessons on a houseboat. Oh, how nice. Which I thought was interesting. And so then I started to look at old Ravi Shankar. And, um... <laughs> you see, it's not Ravi Shankar. That sounds like Cockney rhyming slang. <laughs> Another interesting thing about Ravi Shankar was when Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated in 1948, mm. the national radio wanted to play mournful music and so they got Ravi to play on the oh. uh, and um, so he composed this piece mm. which then many years later featured in the film Gandhi. Oh right. Uh, well speaking of the film Gandhi. Yes. Actually did you know you know um, Ben Kingsley. Of course. Played Gandhi. Yeah he won the he won the Oscar for it I think. Yeah I think he did. Well, did you know that he was born Krishna Pandit Banji, Ben Kingsley? Oh, okay, right. His, um, he had an English mum and an Indian dad. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting because I've always thought it was a bit controversial that, yeah, that a, a white guy, a, a white guy playing, playing um, but he Gandhi. was, he no, was half Indian, half Indian. So it was only half racist then. And staying on the subject of Ben Kingsley, yeah. Did you know his first screen appearance Go on. was in Coronation Street? Coronation yep. Street? He played the part of Ron Jenkins for a couple of years in 1966. I did not know that. Yeah, and uh, that brings me on to other surprising Coronation Street acting parts. Yeah, go on. Honor Blackman. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. She was she was Pussy Galore. Was she? She was Pussy Galore in one of the Bond films. Yeah. yeah. She also played the mother in The Upper Hand, the <laughs> Joe McGann comedy show that I used to love. Ian McKellen. Wow. So Ian McKellen, Gandalf guy. Yeah. Peter Kay. Really? Yes. He was in Coronation Street. In Coronation Street. Right. And Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Yes. Although she she played herself. Okay. In the nineteen ninety seven feature length. Viva Las Vegas episode right. where she was on a plane with Jack and Vera Duckworth uh, who travelled to uh, Las Vegas to renew their wedding vows. Good grief. I, I think I remember that. There's a scene on an aeroplane where Joan walks past Vera so briskly that Vera spills a drink all over herself and Joan says, don't worry, it'll wash out. I should know. Which is a nod ah, to uh, Chinzano adverts. Yeah, okay, the Chinzano adverts. Leonard Roster. Leonard Roster. Oh, yeah. yeah, those are, yeah, we're old enough to remember those, yeah. Oh, can't you just smell those Italian wines, suffused with herbs and spices, spices from, from four, four continents? Oh, I'm being boring. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Getting your head down, sweetie. Jolly good idea. From the house of Chinzano, Chinzano Bianco. 
Oh yeah, the funny thing about Cinzano is I think every household in the 70s and 80s had a bottle of Cinzano, right? We oh, certainly probably. did, right. where, you'd, where you'd, you'd, you'd sort of dust it off every Christmas. My dad would have a Cinzano and lemonade, because I think he thought it was a bit sophisticated. And he'd, just, he'd probably have one, and then it would just go back in the back of the cupboard, along with the old uh, Warnings Avocat. Cinzano was one of the first things I got drunk on at university. Congratulations. One of, one of those drinks that you get drunk on it when you're about 18, and then you can't even smell it for the rest of your life, because it makes you dry heave. <laughs> Okay, okay, we're just going to back up, okay. right? We're going to back up. Do you remember we were talking right at the beginning about George Bernard Shaw? Yeah. He had a shed, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And then Vivian Lee came to visit him at yeah. his shed, and then she co-starred with Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Well, I have found another killer fact about Clark Gable, which I'd wish to share with you. Oh, please right. do. Right, now, in the film, it happened one night, mm. Clark Gable's character is seen leaning against a fence and he's just munching on a raw carrot. Oh. Okay. Now, a guy by the name of Frizz Frelling. Now, does that ring any bells? Frizz Frelling? Yeah, a bloke called Frizz Frelling. No. No. He saw the film, right? And he had created the character Bugs Bunny. And he saw this scene and mm -hmm. he thought, that would be brilliant for my character Bugs Bunny. What, to be munching, to munching on carrots? On a carrot. Apparently, in the wild, rabbits wouldn't necessarily eat carrots. And that's a bit of a myth that has been created through the Bugs Bunny oh. cartoons. So the whole Bugs Bunny carrot crunching shtick yeah. comes from Clark Gable. And that's the end. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If we have floated your boat or pushed your button, then subscribe by visiting our website, whenonethingleadstoanother.com. We've also added some links to things that we have discovered on this episode, so you too can lose yourself down the great internet rabbit hole of discovery. A massive thanks to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his brilliant album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting our podcast. Remember to join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note, all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity. Mm.